online, particularly I want to greet those over in Germany again. Guten Tag, das ist sehr gut, so pray for this sermon. We want to greet all certainly uh, those down in Florida, and we're fixing to have a sermon here. That's how you say that there. But as we gather together, you know, Christmas is a time when it brings people together from all around and all different styles and traditions. And particularly everybody, no matter what you believe, gets into trading things, swapping things, giving things in all cultures. I had a woman sharing with me after the Christmas tea that we had here. She said she was doing her job in northern Arizona. She was driving and she saw an old uh, Navajo woman on the side of the road just kind of walking along. And she pulled over and said, would you like a ride? And the lady didn't say anything, just nodded and got her in a car. And she was trying to keep small talk going along, but the uh, elderly woman just looking around at everything. And then she noticed a bag on the seat next to the woman driving and so this woman said to this Navajo woman, he said, it's a bottle of wine. I got it for my husband. And the old woman just smiled and said, good trade. <laughs> Some of you will get that on the way home, but why do we trade? And what is this whole thing about Rome? What do we know about Rome? Well, our shepherds, once again, in our series can give us a little insight. Watch this. Okay, everybody here? Okay, great. Meet and greet over. Sit down. All right, this is going to be fantastic. We're going totally high-tech today. Slideshow! Okay, okay. You got that? Yeah. You read the instructions? We can't get started until you sit down. Okay, okay, okay. Lights! Okay, this is our vacation to Rome, which was Exhausting. No, it wasn't. You really think so? Rome was built on the Tiber River in 753 B.C., named after King Romulus. Who was raised by a she-wolf. Now, that's just a rumor. And married the son of Mars, the god of war and a she-wolf. This is why we encourage premarital counseling. Now, first, Rome was in the center of a kingdom. Then it became a republic. And by the time we got there, it was an empire. An empire. Augustus, I am your father. So, at this point, Rome had conquered and defeated Italy and Greece and parts of Spain. And then, in 2nd century B.C., the population just exploded. They exploded? No, they didn't blow up. I'm just saying there were lots and lots of people. Mainly Italian farmers that had been driven from their homes because of the new massive slave-operated farms. Which made it a city of one million people. Now, Augustus came in and established a monarchy where the emperor held power for life because he didn't want to become a dictator like Julius Caesar. Because it did not turn out well for him. (gasps) Augustus began great reforms, social, political, economic, and then supervised a grand reconstruction of the city. He became quite the patron of the arts. Oh, very nice. He also established Pax Romana, which was a period of peace that lasted about 200 years. All we are saying is give Pax Romana a chance. And without war to divert the population, they had to create massive entertainment to appease the masses. And that's why they built the Colosseum. Listen to this lineup. 
One o'clock, man versus gladiator. Two o'clock, man versus lion. Three o'clock, man versus gladiator and lion, which I feel is fairly derivative. They built the Roman baths. And they officially celebrate 159 holidays a year. I mean, the decorations are not even down for winter solstice when you've got to celebrate Bacchus Day. Augustus was also responsible for issuing a decree for a census of the entire world. Which means one thing. Road trip! Then after Augustus, things went a bit haywire with the emperors Caligula, who was a little crazy. Who got a little assassinated. And then Nero, who was a little crazier who burned down Rome, blamed the Christians, and then killed himself because he didn't want to be assassinated. But during this brief window of peace, the gospel was able to be spread throughout the entire civilized world. Which was great. But then the barbarians moved in about 200 years later, and you could not find a decent bed and breakfast. And that was our trip to Rome. Yeah. Oh, hey, can we show them the slides from our trip to the Grand Canyon? No, I think we put these people through enough today. We rented donkeys. Hold on. Well, I did. <laughs> amen, amen. Lots of information. When you think of Rome, how does this connect to Christmas? How does a pagan Roman emperor making a decree to take a census so that he can tax everybody, therefore forcing Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem, what does this city tell us about God? It tells us two things. That first of all, God is the sovereign Lord of all of history. Whether people know it or not, or your history and mine as well. And second of all, he is a God of details. He fulfills things so perfectly. And the things that you and I think are so random in our life, that God, when we ask him in, is using them. Now, God will use you and me. He wants to use us as an example of his love and his grace. Or if we choose, he will use us as an illustration of his justice. But God will use us. And the choice is up to you and me. Because He is the sovereign God of all of history. you got your Bible. Let's take a look at this again. Over to Luke, the second chapter on page 832. As Luke is careful, remember he said, many people have written down different accounts of Jesus. This is probably about the year 65 or so A.D. Could be earlier than that. And he's very careful in his history. He, and he says in the second chapter, in those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Gaius Octavius Quirinius was born September the 23rd in 63 B.C. When he is 20 years old, he will take the title of his murdered father-in-law, Julius Caesar Octavius. When the, he, together with Mark Anthony and Marcus Lepidius, formed the second triumvirate, the three that rule Rome. When he is made the very first emperor, the Senate changes his name to the revered one, Augustus. August? He will take the title Pontifus Maximus, the high priest of all of the empire. Augustus Caesar, Octavius, when his earlier name was as hard and tough as nails. He was as shrewd as a snake. He was a builder. As the shepherds told it, he enters the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome for 200 years. I mean, there's trouble going on, but it's fairly stable. He builds a road system like no road system the world has ever seen. He was a religious man. He restored 
alone over 200 pagan temples in the city of Rome itself. He built aqueducts. He was one of the great military commanders. And he was also somebody who he said, I inherited a city of clay and I leave you a city of marble. He built Rome to the glory that it was. Now he's sitting there and he declares this census. Now what's interesting is I love to read critics of the Bible from other centuries because they hadn't had discovered a lot of archaeology. And this in Corinthians they say was that, well, it's obviously a Christian myth made up. Not so. We discovered not only did Augustus declare a census in 8 B.C., he declared one 20 years earlier, 28 B.C., and in 14 A.D. And the census was, because he loved to be able to see how the empire was growing. By the way, they had over, in this time in Rome, it had over a million slaves. Most of them were blonde-haired northern tribes that they brought down. Actually, the most prized slaves were from North Africa. The ones with dark skin were the most desired. White skin, like me, was kind of the, the lower trash slaves. And he needed a way to be able to take care of them, so that's why bread and circus gave him a bread, entertain them so they wouldn't rebel. Quirinius, what Luke just says there, not only do we know about him, we know quite a bit about him now. The trouble is he gave a census in the year 7 A.D. And if Augustus was in 8 B.C., and we think Jesus was born about 4 or 6 B.C. Why B.C.? Because Dionysus, a little monk, that means the little monk, he made the biggest math error in history when he moved from the Roman calendar to a Christian one, and he didn't count all the way back. But how does that jive? I thought Luke was supposed to be a good historian. Because when you read your account there, it says this was before proto the census. And we find out that he gathered and it took about two years, somewhere like Palestine, a hick town on the outer province compared to when Rome is doing it, for the information to get there. In fact, there's another place where a census is mentioned. Where is that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Turn over to Acts, the fifth chapter, page 889 in your pew Bible. The Roman historian Tacitus, Suetonius, Dio Cassius mentions, not, and also does Josephus mentions of the census being taken. Now this is where Peter standing before uh, the court and they're saying quit preaching about Jesus. And Peter says, who should I obey, God or you? Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel... Pause, who will also, who was taught by Hillel, kind of one of the real brains of first century Judaism, and he'll also groom Saul of Tarsus, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, and that means all of them, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. And he said to them, and he's talking to his fellow court here, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Theodius rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up at a time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan and this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. Now, Gamaliel will never become a Christian. He'll remain a follower of the law. 
where his disciples, Saul of Tarsus, will meet the risen Christ and become a follower. But this is his advice is saying, if this is of men, this thing's just going to wash away. If this is of God, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this. The census and shows you that that census was taken. This is not some philosophy or some made-up way of looking at life. This is born out of the hardcore facts of history because God is in all of history. And he uses these senses. He uses Augustus to decree this because he's so good. He's just like a good counterboxer. He lets, even those that are against him, he lets them swing and he'll use their weight and their position. You know, you can use lots of things. We're Detroit. You ever go to Greenfield Village? Henry Ford, you know, he loved to collect things. And he, he bought the house of Orville Wright and, and Edison's. He used to hang around Edison. And one of the things in Edison's house has this, when you come up at the gate, it's this huge revolving kind of turnstile you have to turn to get in. And Edison didn't like having people come over, but every Christmas he made everybody go through this gate. You know why? He had it hooked to a water pump. Every time you saw him, you were pumping water for him into his house. God uses everything. Just like a catalyst will take two different elements and form a new way, God will use throughout history all the people to fulfill His Word to such a place of detail. He will use the famine to drive Jacob down to Egypt so that they will be saved there. 400 years He'll use the plagues not just to bend Pharaoh's knee, but to drive the Israelites out. He will use the Canaanites who fight against Israel to sift the heart of God's people. We saw, he says, I am raising up the Assyrians to conquer the ten tribes. He takes the Babylonians and they come and invade and take them as he continues to sift his people into exile. Then he raises up the Medes and the Persians to conquer the Babylonians to send them back to their place. And in all, he's moving towards this little Jewish girl of her prayers by the name of Mary. And Gabriel will stand and say, Hail, O favored one, you have found blessing with God. And she will deliver the Messiah, the Son of God, light born into this world. And God continues to use things. Rome, when you and I get to glory and we meet brothers and sisters there, and it's going to be more real than you and I looking at each other right now, you're going to find them by the thousands that died violent deaths for doing what you're doing right now. All they needed to do was come and take a pinch of incense and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. They didn't care what you believed. You just behave. And the Christians wouldn't do it. They'd say, Jesus Curios, Jesus Christos Curios is Lord. And they went to their death. And God used the persecution to explode the church. Martyr, Marturios means witness. When you go to court and you raise your right hand and you get sworn in, you're Marturios. You're a witness. And the reason they got associated with martyrs is because they said the blood of the martyrs was the seeds of the church. They watched these people go to these violent deaths. And one of the Roman commentators said they couldn't stand the incessant singing of the Christians in the arenas. They would sing to God as they were being killed. And God uses this. And then Rome. Rome will become. We're trying to make L.A. the greatest city for Christ. Decadent Rome will become the greatest city for Christ for a thousand years. If it can happen to Rome, it can happen to L.A. Amen? And what it requires is why we connect and work together with these other churches and ministry. And the whole thing, as you see, 
The purpose isn't to try to run after the good things in life and get them. The purpose is to get in the place where God wants you to be so He can bless you. Uh, my uh, son-in-law, uh, Matt, I, he's Italian, so I call him my son-in-latte just to upset him. But uh, he's got a couple of graduate degrees in uh, aerospace. And he tries to explain these things to me, but in orbital mechanics and gravity assist... Do you know what the fuel is for interstellar travel? Math. Mathematics. You don't have a little spaceship out here chasing after a planet. You know mathematically where these destinations are going to be, and you use something called gravity assist. Scott Vogt in the first hour was telling me about this. He's involved with this, with JPL. And you use the gravity to sling it to the place where the planet's going to meet. It's so much like our life. You use the gravity of things that are in the way. You don't want to bury it in the side of the planet. You want to get just close enough to throw you. And God is so good. He's so confident. He thinks he's God. That he will take all the little things in your life and, and rather than flipping out the big things, the things that break your heart, the things that you thought would never happen, rather than going, how did this get in the way? The Lord's trying to use it for a gravity assist to get you out to the place where He can finally bless us. And that's exactly what He's doing here in this story that Luke is telling us. Wayne Gretzky, you know, the great hockey player, they said, you really skate fast? And he actually says, no. They said, well, why is he so good? He says, I skate smart. I skate to where the puck is going to be. You don't go chasing after the puck on the ice. You get to the place like a pool shot where it's going to be. And that's your life and mine. When you crack that code, rather than freaking out about everything, saying, Lord, why am I in this job? Why am I with these people? Lord, how come I don't have children? How come I have the children you gave me, God? How come these kids? How come I can't get a date? How come I have this place? How come I'm in this church? Rather than always saying, why, why, why? Say, thank you, Lord, and start moving. God is really good at not only history, He's really good at details. And the random little things that you and I think are just happen chance are no happenstance. Now, this is not wooden determinism. I told you before the old Scott that fell and broke his leg and said, I'm glad that's over. You know, like, like it had to happen. That's not what this is saying. God's sovereignty. And John Paul Sartre had a line in his existential depression, but it was a great statement. He said, we are doomed to freedom. He didn't want to be as free as he was. You are totally free, and God is totally sovereign. And he is so good, he's so all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving and all-holy that he uses the freedoms that you and I make in our little decisions for his purposes. And it always ends up for those who yield themselves to the Lord to our blessing. If it wasn't for Augustus and his crazy building programs, those Roman roads, and you know why he put them there? So he could move the troops as fast. It was one of the fastest moving troops the world had ever seen because of the road system. You know who used the road system? Peter and Paul and the first evangelists. If it wasn't for the road system, the gospel never would have exploded. The printing press. You know why Luther could say sola scriptura? Because now people could have a copy of scripture. Scripture in their hand rather than just a scroll in the ark in a little synagogue that now you had the ability to read the gospel. And technology is what the printing press was to the Reformation today. 
Our partners right now, and some of them in Cairo, I'm still praying for them as we prayed with them, and as well in, in China and, in, and also in North India, Ponraj and some of the more militant Hindu places. You know how they're getting the gospel out there when you can't get Bibles? They're texting the gospel. They're texting the New Testament to each other. And I think things are in this remarkable time in world history. You know, Advent's not just about Jesus coming, being born as a little child and the mystery of the incarnation, God with flesh, and going to this cross and paying for my bill and yours against the holiness of God and being raised and alive and His Spirit now empowering us. He's coming back. But He's not coming back as a child. If you have your Bible, turn with me over to Matthew, the 24th chapter. It's on page 805 in your pew Bible. Remember, Matthew works for the IRS of Rome. He's a tax collector, and he's very methodical in his gospel. He has five great teachings. The first one, the Sermon on the Mount, and this is his last one, and the life of Christ woven around that. 24.1 As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. A pause. Why are they doing that? Jesus, this is Herod's temple, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Jesus has been to this temple three times a year since he was a child. They just had Palm Sunday. His disciples are picking out their offices. They're following the Messiah. And they're going, what do you think of this? And Jesus blows their sandals off with this next statement. He asked them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Pause, and by the way, Titus and the 70th Legion of Rome, when they come and they lay siege in 70 A.D. to Jerusalem, and you know, limestone that hot enough can burn, and the temple itself actually burns, and the gold in the inside that the Romans pulled it back to find the melted gold, when Jesus says something, it is so fulfilled. Verse 5, 3. When He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us. When will this be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice that it never says end of the world, the end of this age. Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of birth pangs. Pause. They said, when will this be? And he said, listen. As a woman is in contractions and they get closer together and more intense, so the world is going to go from disaster to disaster and war upon war. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and the world falling apart, Chillax. (laughs) This is exactly what I said. But the end is not yet. Nine. Then they will hand you over to be tortured and you will be put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. 
So what he's saying is, you're gonna, things are gonna get tough and they're gonna get tougher. When the gospel is proclaimed so that everybody at some moment has a chance to hear, then the justice of God, then the Father will turn to the Son and say, return. It's time to usher in the age to come. You know, they asked Jesus one time, I told you this before, is the world going to get better or worse? And he said, absolutely. That the wheat and the tares will grow together. Good will get better. Simultaneously, evil gets worse. Until his return, and then he separates it out. And then he says, the Son of Man will come in great glory. And if you look over on the next page, it said like lightning striking through the heavens. You're going to not miss it when he comes back. And he talks about the fig tree and about being a faithful servant. And then the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Five were wise, five were foolish. And then everybody's given a talent in one five and one three and one one. And the five and the three invest the money and then they give it to the master says good. And the one says, I know that you're a hard-hearted and I buried it. Here's your talent. And he says this weird thing. Take it from the one and give it to the one who has more. He who has will be given even more. And he who has not, even what he has, will be taken from him. Lewis was right. This life is the suburbs of heaven to the saved and the suburbs of hell to the lost. That God in his love has given us this freedom. And if you think life is good now with the friendship and the wonder of living life in the middle of a tough, broken world, we're just doing nose hits compared to the entree that God is going to put in front of us when we stand in His glory. And if you're living for yourself and money and pleasure and getting back at others, knock yourself out. Because these are the best times you'll ever have. It only gets worse after this. And Jesus is saying, but I don't want anybody to make the wrong choice. And so how should we get ready for you, Master, when you come back? Look over in 31 of the 25th chapter. Jesus answers. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep at His right hand and the goats at His left. And the king will come to those at his right hand. Come, you that are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes and says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was alone. You visited me. I was cold. You gave me clothes. You visited me in prison. And the saved will go, Lord... When did we feed you? And when did we give you something to drink? And when did we visit you in prison? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to moi, to me. And to the lost he'll say, depart from me. I asked you for some food and I asked you for some water and I was alone and I was in prison and I was cold and you just blew me off. And they'll say, Lord, when did we do that to you? He'll say, when you did that to the least of these, you did it to me. And that's why as we go into this city, as we go together, the way to prepare for God is not make a golden highway like they have the glory. It's not to make some super worship center. It's to go love that executive that's out there alone that nobody understands the pressures of being in charge and no one will talk to him. It's by being with that elderly person locked away in that cold apartment, eating her pot pie and visiting her. It's by going to the prison and not saying what you do wrong, but how can we get you on your feet? 
It's by going to the kid out here in the school that nobody will talk to because he's so mean and he's such a bully or he's such a geek. No one will, and us reaching out and inviting him. Or that mom and her kids slipping, sleeping under the viaduct over here on the street tonight. That's what Advent is about. Advent is about because Christ is returning and God is going to work out the details perfect of getting to this place by loving others around him that he can take care of us. You know, Francis, and Francis, you know, never was ordained. He was never a priest of Assisi. He was just a man insanely in love with Jesus. And he had a great statement you've heard before. Always preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. In other words, for Francis, the way you vita evangelica, the way you live, perform the gospel, is you love the poorest of the poor. And when they ask you, yes, you tell them about Christ. The kerygma is the power of what we're doing. And in this city, Bel Air, I just read last year there are more language groups in the L.A. Unified School District than the New York School District. you know that? The world is here. And that means you and I, as we go out and we love these people, some of them, they're in our backyard to tell the good news of Christ. And they're going to have some weird customs, and they're going to help you. And it's by standing by them. I always think what grace is about, uh, one of our trips when we were uh, in Asia, and, and I am horrible with chopsticks. I just can't do it. And we were sitting there and uh, with the pastor and his staff, and I was so hungry, and they put some food in front of me, so I took one of those chopsticks and I just harpooned at me. And they kind of looked at me and kind of nervously laughed, you know, like, can't the foreign devil do anything right, you know? And, uh, and the pastor, I'll never forget this, took one of his chopsticks and harpooned his meat. And then the rest of them started harpooning their meats. I changed their lives forever, I tell you that. But what a classy thing to do. Why is Jesus baptized? John says, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus didn't argue that. He says, let's fulfill all righteousness. Because he stands and he identifies with us. Whether we stand and we stand by the brokenness in the gay community and we stand by the brokenness in the married community and we stand by the brokenness in the single community and we stand by the lepers and we stand by those in prison and we are not in our sense going to change anybody. But just use our mouths. I tell you, the older I get, the more that blows me away as a mystery is the power of the gospel. Like I said, I got an undergrad in psych. To watch a young boy or girl or man or woman find Christ, you can't psychologically and sociologically explain this. Spiritually, you absolutely can. They're born again. And you and I don't need to save anybody. That's God's job. All we need to do with those obnoxious relatives that are coming over, the ones that make fun of you for being a Christian, and the friends, okay, Jesus boy, you're going to go to church? Go, yeah, come on with me. And just tell him, I tell him, look at I never need to sell Christ. If he could show himself to me, he can show himself to anybody who wants to know. A pastor was sharing that he was down in San Antonio and they have a reservoir out by the hill country down there. And there's one reservoir, a lot of runoff, so it's really muddy and they, they have a boat there. And he was there with his nine-year-old and his four-year-old. And his nine-year-old, when he was loading the boat, heard this blood-curling scream. And the nine-year-old said that James had fallen into the water, the four-year-old. 
And he looked and he didn't come up. And so the father dove in after him and looking around in the mud, he could not find him. And panicked to death, he came up and took another breath of air and went down. And thank God he went down and he found his boy holding onto the rock. And so he pried his fingers off and brought him to the surface. And he said, James, what were you doing? He said, I was holding on. Any parent can relate to that panic, to what you would do. Our Heavenly Father had a panic when He saw us lost, drowning, in a world of sin and self-centeredness and pride and illusion and evil. And His Son, putting on flesh forever, dove down in the very bottom where it is cold and looking around. And we kept running and holding on to the things of this world and He pries our fingers off and takes us to the surface to the smile in the strong arms of our Father who says, I have you and I will never let you go. That's Advent. And we go into this world, even though we have blown it, even though we still got our addictions, even though we can't control our mouths, even though we're still so afraid, even though we have all of our issues, and we tell the good news. You know what August's last words were? And there's a debate. There's a new book out this week I was reading, and they don't know whether he was poisoned by Lavina, one of his wives, or whether he committed suicide. He dies visiting the grave of his father. It might have been an assisted suicide so that he could give power to Tiberius, his stepson, so it would be an orderly. We don't know. But we do know his last words were this as he was dying. Have I played the part well? Then would someone applaud as I exit the stage? And he dies. Compare that to Jesus. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he or she die, they will live again. And whoever lives and believes in me will never really die. And the rabbi Saul of Tarsus, taught by Gamaliel, said, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Therefore rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord again, I say, rejoice. Do you see that God is not only when the world's flipping out and CNN and Fox News and everything's going around, when in question, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout, you know, all the pundits out there. God says, chillax a bit, huh? It's going to get rough, but it's going just as I said. And I will use all this for my glory and for your good. Do you see that those little details of your life that you're going, why am I in this situation, brother? Use a little gravity assist. Say, Lord, this has got a lot of gravity. This sucks. It's pulling me into it. To be able to say, Lord, but throw me to the place where you can bless me and give me the good of life. Hosanna. Blessed be to God in the highest. And he shall be Emmanuel. Not God close. Not God near. God with us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you have... And your great love, and in your brilliance, your omniscience, and your power, 
That, Lord, You stepped out of the glory of heaven to become that poor peasant child in the smell of urine and manure of a stall. To be able to come and to live that life and to live perfectly, to love the children, the animals, to bless those, to tell the truth, to confront people that were going to destruction to say, turn around. That would go to the cross for us who we were rebels, shaking our fist in Your face. And if there are any of you in this room and you know that God has been speaking to you and you've been aware of another voice besides mine and you know it's the Lord and you know that He's alive you may not understand it all but why don't you simply say Christ I take all I know of me and I give it to all I know of you I want to surrender Lord you come and live in my life right now I believe that you shed your blood with my face on your heart and you paid for it and that you're alive come and take over and right now you'll start a relationship that will last forever Thank You, Lord, for this glorious time. Thank You, God, for Your love. And God, I pray that as we go and we love the people in this city, the tough ones to love, that You would be pleased because we do it because You loved us first. Come now, Lord, as we give to You our tithes and our offerings. Bless the gift and the giver alike that Christ might reign. It's for His sake we pray. Amen.